0: Today, we have back with us Matt Moss. He is the pastor of St. John's Evangelical Lutheran Church in Corcoran, Minnesota. Welcome back, Matt. Good to be with you, Jason. It's good to have you back. So, we're going to take up a book talk today, particularly on Peter Lighthart's The Theopolitan Vision. And one of the striking things about this book, and why I think it's so helpful to discuss, and why you mentioned it to me to begin with, is you know, when you look at the business world, they are constantly hammering, like their mission and their vision to their employees. Uh, the employers are always saying, "Remember why we're doing what we're doing and what the task we're given to do is, and how easy it is for." I think, in particular, pastors and for church members, to forget the mission that and that Jesus has put us on the reason we exist, and the purpose for which we're existing, and what our role in this life is. And I think this book, in particular, The Theopolitan Vision, really helps us to remember who we are and why we do what we do, and uh, to constantly remind our people of that. So before we kind of dive into that book— Tell me a little bit about who Peter Lighthart is and what the Theopolis Institute is. i had actually reached out to Lighthart uh, probably four or five months ago to see if he could come on, and uh, he was too busy for us. So uh, now we're going to, maybe this will entice him to correct the record.
1: I hope that accomplishes it. Uh, Peter Lighthart is a theologian and exegete. Uh, I think from his history, he was a, a pastor at a Reformed church for a little while. Now I think he's teaching uh, as a resident theologian in a Presbyterian church. I had heard somewhere that he was raised Lutheran, but I, I can't verify that. It's I do true. know he did his doctorate at Cambridge. It is true. Okay. Yeah, well, yeah. That's, so uh, he that sheds a little light on some of what he says on the liturgy, but yeah. yeah.
0: He... He mentions it in uh, the book "A House for My Name" that he was raised Lutheran, and I'm oh, pretty sure okay. it's LCMS. Um, so, oh, well, it,
1: he did teach for a time at St. Andrews College, that's in the Doug Wilson crowd. For any listeners keeping track of who's been where and who's influenced whom, uh, most notably, perhaps, is that Lightheart and his wife have ten children. God be praised. Uh, he's a prolific writer on top of that. Uh, An exegete, primarily in Old Testament, but does a lot with the New Testament as well. And uh, a cultural commentator uh, recently uh, writing a lot for first things as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Theopolis Institute, I believe, is his own creation. Uh, He calls it a Christian think tank and training center. It's based in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, It teaches men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. If you go to the Theopolis Institute's website, they have a fair number of interesting articles. They've got an app developed to get it out even wider, and I'd say for being below the Bible Belt, it is very liturgical um, yeah. for that that area.
0: Mm-hmm. We had already uh, interviewed uh, a member of the Theopolis Institute, Jeff Myers. He wrote uh, most recently a book a commentary on the Book of James. Uh, he had studied. He was raised LCMS as well, and spent some time at Concordia Seminary doing PhD work. But he wrote a book called "The Lord's Service," which goes through kind of liturgical uh, uh, setting forward, kind of a vision for what liturgical worship looks like in the Reformed tradition. And that was interesting. Mm-hmm. That was a great, a great chat. Okay, so what are we looking at today? Uh, what is the book that we're going to discuss today?
1: Well, your listeners could find it probably in two different formats. Uh, there's a series of four books called The Theopolitan Fundamentals, or it's uh, most recently been published all four books in one volume by Lexham Press called On Earth As in Heaven. And the four parts of that book correspond to the four separate smaller books that you might be able to find, uh, the first one being The Theopolitan Vision, that's the most important one and the one we'll spend most of our time on today. I think it's also the the most valuable one for Lutherans looking to read it. Uh, The second book or second part is Theopolitan Reading, which is just a demonstration of his methodology. Uh, The Theopolitan Liturgy, I would say for your Lutheran listeners, they could save their time and maybe go get the, the new Lutheran service book, Companion to the Services, which has a great, great essay by Winger on the history and theology of the divine service. That'll be a better guide for you on that. And then the final part is Theopolitan Mission, uh, which is decent. It's got a lot on cultural renewal, and Lutherans tend to struggle with that, uh, maybe intentionally. <laughs> I'm planning for us to spend our time on the Theopolitan Vision because if we're bad at culture, I think we're even worse at expressing a vision for what it means for the church to be church.
0: Yeah. So uh, tell me more about that. Wh- what does he mean by the church being church? Because sometimes you hear like just offhandedly people saying, all right, church, you know, be the church, but it's never explained. Um, what does he mean?
1: Yeah, if I could translate it into Lutheran terms, um, the church is liturgical and doctrinal. We are as Lutherans that we can't always explain why even to our own members, which may just be a personality uh, type that we like things that don't change. And we really don't care what it means. Just as long as you don't touch it, Uh, (laughs) which isn't very helpful for your, your average members. They, they want some kind of forward movement. They believe in Christ. They know that the church is to be, Active and living, and they want to march in the church militant, but they they themselves know that they're not the leader. They're looking to the pastor for that, and we don't always know how to balance that. We're we're definitely more on the servant side of the servant leadership dynamic, and so we get uh, stagnant. Our people then start turning to programs and activities that are not uh, essential to what the church is but they are attractive because they're not being told what the church is and is to be doing, even with how the divine service relates to your life in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, And and that's where we get into this heart of what it means for the church to be church. For a lot of non-Lutheran churches and non-liturgical churches, I'm not sure they can tell you why their service is there either. When they say, let the church be church, they mean something happening outside the church. Uh, for Lightheart, and I think this is why our Lutheran listeners can, can listen and take away a lot from his presentation, it starts with the church in liturgy, uh, mm-hmm. receiving Christ's word, being shaped by that, uh, and being an outpost in this hostile world. Um, I think it's a particular danger for churches that have a school attached, and maybe you've seen this, where the school is their whole identity if it right. closed tomorrow it would the, the church itself might cease to exist or if it didn't if it was still there it would certainly have an identity crisis right that shouldn't be right that shouldn't be for Christ's church on earth the divine service should be enough if that was all we were doing that should be enough to shape our people's lives and get things happening where that church where that church exists uh, we can do more having schools is good but If we cannot show our people how the worship of God and the gathering of the saints fits into our life together, let alone predominates everything else we do, then we're in trouble.
0: Yeah. So it sounds like what Lightheart is talking about here is that the gathering together, and I'm sure we'll unpack this when we move forward, the gathering together within the liturgical assembly, within the divine service, is where kind of the mission and the vision of who the people of God are or the citizens of heaven are in in the citizens of this world or among them, perhaps like vocationally or things like that. Is that right?
1: Yes. It is where, to take kind of my own analogy, this isn't one of his, uh, it's where our secret agents come back to base to receive their reconnaissance and their objectives mm-hmm. and then are deployed to the, you know, subverting of the world in their local stations and life out of their homes. Yeah.
0: So it's the, the, the reverse of the screw tape letters.
1: I I, I would say based on where our culture and society is. Yeah. We're, we're in yeah. that position now.
0: Yeah. Okay. So who, uh, so who's he writing for? I mean, so if this is primarily pastors, is he trying to get them all on board, or does he have a, a larger audience in mind?
1: Lightheart tells us who his audience is in the introduction, and I think this is truly an a incredible quotation. It's a little bit long. Your listeners will have to bear with me. Um, but he tells us who he's writing for and how he's looking for each group to, to fit themselves in. So he says, my ideal reader is young or youngish. You're an evangelical Christian. You may be a pastor or priest or seminary student. You may be a lay leader in the church or a member observing from a distance. You share a desire to follow Jesus and become more like him. Your interest in the Bible, your love for the church, these loves shape everything in your life. You love the church's tradition, but you aren't a traditionalist. You realize that the church has to address the challenges of the present, but you aren't a progressive. But there's something else, a restless hunger for something more. If you're a pastor or a teacher, you feel you're skimming the surface of the biblical text, but don't know how to dig deeper. You know it's God's word, but you wonder why it's so weird. You may find yourself avoiding some biblical books, Leviticus, parts of Judges, the early chapters of First Chronicles, and sticking to the clearer, safer bits, where you at least have some idea of what's going on. If you're a layman or laywoman, you're edified by your pastor's sermons, but you suspect there's so much more to be said. You ask questions, but they don't get answered. You Google, but you're rightly cautious about what passes for theology on the internet. You attend worship at least once a week, but you wonder if there isn't more. If you attend a Bible church, you might have slipped away in the last few months to attend an Anglican Evensong or a Catholic Mass, and that somehow seems much more like worship. You know some churches have weekly communion. That seems intuitively right, though you're not sure why. You sense there's something deeply wrong with today's world, and you're anxious for the future, but you don't want to turn the clock back. You don't want to stand with the doomsayers, and you think that the politicalization of Christianity does more harm than good. Your skin crawls when other Christians merge Christian faith with patriotism. Your skin also crawls when Christians hitch their faith to the latest fad. You know Jesus is the answer and that the church is called to carry on Jesus' ministry of healing, justice, salvation. You want to be a part of something big, and Jesus' mission is as big as it gets, but you wonder if the church is up to the challenge. You don't want to switch churches. If you're not Catholic or Orthodox, you don't want to become Roman Catholic or Orthodox. If you have Catholic and Orthodox friends and you know they're Christians, yet you don't buy the papacy and don't want to venerate icons. Besides, your mother would roll in her grave if you swam the Tiber or moved to Constantinople. (laughs) If you're Catholic or Orthodox, you don't want to become a Protestant. Mothers roll in their graves when their children move in that direction too. You love your church. You love its vigor and its commitment to the Bible. You love its evangelistic fervor. Yet, whether you're a Protestant, a Catholic, or an Orthodox Christian, you're appalled at the church's divisiveness, you long for the church to be united. Worst of all, you think you're the only one in the world who feels this way. You have coffee every other week with another pastor who shares your longings, but the two of you seem alone in the wilderness. You have a friend or two at church with whom you carry on whispered conversations about your restlessness. You don't want to be divisive, you know that your pastor is responsible for you, and you want to honor him. You don't quite know what you want to be different, only that you want something more, and you have trouble being patient. Sound familiar? <laughs> then this book is for you. It's for pastors and laypeople who are looking for something more. That more is what I'm calling the Theopolitan Vision. And I think that could be a great summary of a lot of what the the Godestines crowd listeners uh, are looking for out of this podcast and out of their Lutheran Church Missouri Synod congregations. Yeah. something more than kind of a, a mushy middle that doesn't
0: move. Mhm. The sleeping giant as we've been uh, called in the past. Uh, so throughout the book he uses this um uh, moniker for for who he's talking to, right? He he calls them um Theo and Thea <laughs> the you know the the, the god people. Um uh, either male or female. So so what is that vision that he then sets before them? If if this is the audience, what is he trying to bring them into? What, what's the more, I should
1: say? Obviously, yes, the the more is the, the vision or rather how we go about doing the work that Christ himself has set forth, right? Christ is the one who builds the church on earth. Christ is the one who sees it to the last day where the new heaven, the new earth are uh, brought in. And the vision of how that happens takes place in the divine service. So he gives a very vivid biblical picture of what it means for the church to be church and engaging the world. By that, he's correcting the decades of the church acting like a business and acting like a secular agency, trying to imitate the world in order to evangelize the world. That can't work. That is not... Uh, how Christ set it out. The the vision of the city of God is that the church must be an otherworldly city, an earthly outpost, uh, that we, will, we know we will one day be what the new heavens and new earth are. We mm-hmm. are to be a small foretaste of that now, and that is how people are uh, dragged out of the unbelieving world into a world that will exist and
0: go on. Yeah. So he kind of envisions... Uh, each congregation as what like a, a an embassy of uh, of heaven or you know the presidio uh in the you know the spanish mission in texas and in the southwest uh or you know the the, the campus martius uh in the the western uh, the westward movement you know settling the ohio river valley their outposts uh it but it's not just like a representation. It, it it sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like it's not just a, a representation of that city, but that's where the city exists on earth.
1: Correct. And he's very adamant on the visible nature of the church mm-hmm. for that very reason, that we don't allow theologizing about church and invisibility and spirituality as an excuse to Uh, not evangelize, not gather together even Mm -hmm. as uh, fellow Christians in the local parish church.
0: So does he put that in incarnational terms, you know, the way that Lutherans would, like where God comes down and visits, and this is the place where he comes down and visits, or does he kind of stick with what... um, in shorthand terms, I, you know, I would see as kind of a Reformed understanding, which is where where people ascend into heaven?
1: Uh, good question. There are more than enough places where he describes it as heaven on earth, and even in some of his talk about the Lord's Supper, it will be about Jesus' presence. Mm-hmm. Where you know my eyebrows kind of raised and said, "Okay, maybe that's more of his Lutheran upbringing rather than how I would expect a cliched Reformed guy to put it." And and so that's what uh, another thing that makes it an interesting read for a Lutheran—not uh, yeah. to buy into it and start communing with him and you know reading what he says uncritically, but to uh, read that with a lens and say, "Okay, this is there's something a Lutheran can read here and take away and put through our pure filter." Uh, as opposed to um, it just being a caricatured, reformed presentation that we just dismiss and move on.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, so w- in terms of brass tacks, what does he what does he put forward? H- how is this uh, heaven on earth? This outpost of an otherworldly city here in time? H- how is this carried out? Or what are the what are the marks of? In that?
1: short, it. Is- Yeah. In short, the church is supposed to worship. (laughs) That is the (laughs) primary work in God's city. Uh, We are to worship and it should be filled with scripture. He uses the phrase saturated with scripture. And if it's going to be that, then a church will have a rich full diet of the word. He says it will have a rich liturgy that will include weekly Eucharist and the church will engage in a uh, reclamation mission that we will actually take part in transforming societies. Uh, but that begins with the average pastor in a small local church doing his duty. Uh, the way he puts it, a pastor at the pulpit is at the wheel of the ship of the world. A pastor offering the body and blood of Jesus at the Lord's table is at the center of the universe. A pastor leads the charge in mission, equipping the troops to fight Jesus's holy war. Uh, so that is the, the basics of what the church is to be doing.
0: How does he expect the the world to respond to this cultural renewal by the church? He is
1: realistic. He's not naive. Uh, he's not an overly optimistic guy about it. He knows that the world will reject it. In fact, he says that the world understands more than some Christians do how radical the gospel is, how the gospel will expect a lot of things to change, and they're going to re- fight against that. The optimistic thing, if there is any, is that the world, as it's currently operating, especially in our place, is fracturing and decaying. It's politics, geopolitics, economy, everything is crumbling down. That'll only make it more vicious, but it's all the more reason why we need to focus on what the church is here to do and to be, Mm -hmm. uh, because we're perfectly positioned to make some of those reclamations.
0: Yeah. So it seems like, you know... Sort of in the Missouri Synod now, we have this very hard line distinction between kind of the spiritual reality of the church and then how it is lived out in actual real persons, uh, flesh and blood reality, uh, that there seems to be this desire to keep that hard line distinction hard uh, in a lot of people uh, because they recognize that 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 you know engaging in that kind of holy war uh in that those kind of battles is going to bring the ire of the culture or the 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 dominion of the powers and principalities to put their sights directly on us in lutheran terms i mean it, it this it seems to me that this is not historic luther uh, a, a historic lutheran understanding of um uh, of how we should exist with those hard line distinctions like that, um, is this a nice corrective for us in our day?
1: Yes, and he's not there. He's not the only one saying this. There are Lutherans pointing out and teaching that our compartmentalization of spirituality over here on one side, everyday life over here on the other side, maybe even a church and state distinction overly done, is not actually the Lutheran position and Mm -hmm. is not serving us well presently, and we need to uh, be wise, right? If this is Mm -hmm. a counterinsurgency warfare, you don't have to say who all of your spies are, right? (laughs) There is some wisdom in not being so overt that you just, you know, ruin all your assets up front. Mm -hmm. But the idea that we can just go inside the four walls of our sanctuary on Sunday, be Christian, And then live the next six days of the week as pagans. That's not going to work. It's not even true.
0: Yeah. Okay. So, in terms of how this is carried out, then uh, you know, it seems like you have you know, it's focused on worship. So this is like uh, the the first part, and then the focus on scriptural, uh, the Eucharist, uh, the mission. What are the part? What are the the parts of that vision that he that that he has set forth? What are the things we need to concentrate on?
1: So the other three books in the series, or the other three parts of the book, uh, develop it out in greater detail: reading of scripture, liturgy, and mission. And this first part the Theopolitan vision, then unpacks each of those three as well. So that's why I say you could probably get away with just the first part, Theopolitan vision, Mm -hmm. uh, without getting into all the others in such an exhaustive detail. Uh, But that's the the basics of it is scripture, saturation of scripture uh, in a liturgical setting as well. Uh, He will have a lot on the Lord's Supper that we'll need to dive into, and then Mm -hmm. how that flows out from the city of God into the cities of
0: men. Okay. All right, so uh, what is the first chapter about? What's he? What stage is he setting there for us?
1: So the first chapter is called Blessed City, and he uses the example from the book of Revelation with the new heavens and new earth coming down as... Uh, a repeated image from multiple times of the Old Testament. Remember, he's an Old Testament exegete Mm -hmm. where when God reveals something about heaven to a prophet, whether it's Moses or Solomon and David or Ezekiel, the implication is now build the earthly copy of this. (sighs) So that's what, uh, how revelations heavenly city is a model and marching order, the mission and vision to build, Borrow the terms from business for John in the revelation for the church going forward.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. So he uses, he's constantly talking about the city of God. I mean, is he really doing the Augustinian thing or does he have something else in mind here?
1: He is definitely a scholar of the church fathers as well. Uh, I know he's got a a very thorough book on Athanasius, uh, but. In this case, I think it's not quite as much uh, repackaging Augustine as um, his own just very creative way to take the biblical image. Um, this is urban renewal at work, mm-hmm. uh, that in the cities of men, how are we uh, positioned to survive and expand the reach of the gospel? So, But he's also very set on this being... Uh, a visible thing. This right. is not the theology of uh, or the the theological city in an invisible spiritual sense. He's going to spend a lot of time emphasizing the visible nature of the church. It is a community of people within the wider community that they live, yeah. uh, and that is the church. And he's he's speaking to he is very ecumenical in this sense. He's talking about mm-hmm. uh, all Christians who are true Christians who have their brick-and-mortar buildings, real men and real women with their real children going to a real church with real pastors, and you can see who they are and who they aren't.
0: Yeah, so he, uh, I remember reading this thinking, this is, you know, the the reformers, uh, the Lutheran reformers, they ask the question, what is the church? And then they end up defining where it is. <laughs> so you know, they give that invisible nature but then they say, "Well, if you want to know who's part of that, then you've got to find, you know, where that church exists." And so the reformers, or the Lutheran reformers, define where the church is, where the Word of God is preached in its truth and purity, and the sacraments are distributed according to the Gospel, rightly, uh, rightly understood. Is, is he doing the same thing? Is he just saying it in a different way, or does he have something else in mind?
1: I definitely don't think he's saying the same thing uh, as uh, Augsburg Confession would. Uh, I don't think he's just trying to say it in a more creative way either. Um, I think this will be one of the areas that we will identify a Lutheran difference uh, that will then feed later on into you know a basic question of who should commune whom right. in a given church. Um so he limits the invisibility of, to just the fact that we can't see everybody that's a Christian all at once, okay. even that some are in hiding and some are dead. Um, so he'll say that the invisibility of the church is not a defining quality of the church. The church's invisibility is empirical, not theological. And I don't think we would go that far with him. Yeah. Um it's it's more than just empirical there is a theology to it and that's why the marks of the church are the important visible signs that they are he would call that a boundary dispute you know his image is that the church is visible because you could in theory get every true christian in the same place at the same time send a drone above it and take a picture and oh yes we'll all you know disagree about who should be standing in the picture boundary disputes just like every society has you know the uh Irish are going to have fights over who's really Irish and whatever. Well, that's that's a very different approach to visible and invisible church than than a Lutheran looking at the marks of the church.
0: Right. Yeah. And I, I mean, would would we at least now? Uh, and maybe it's debatable during the time of Lutheran orthodoxy or or before. I mean, would we would we even question whether or not they're Is it really a boundary dispute, or is it? It seems like it's more like a doctrinal dispute for us. Like we're not going to say we're united when we're when we're not united.
1: Correct. I I think that's a key Uh, for Lightheart and this particular work. I think the benefit or what he's ultimately trying to get at is a problem that we can agree with him on. Mm -hmm. That you know now in the twenty twenties and that's when he's writing this, late 2019, 2020, 2022, we have the same problem he's trying to fight, which is um, maybe even more pronounced in our Lutheran tradition than in the Reformed tradition, Mm -hmm. but that we're using the invisibility of the church as an excuse not to evangelize or as an excuse for why our churches may be shrinking or why our parishes are struggling or why People are generally ignorant of God's word and, oh, we can't do anything about that. But thanks be to God, the church is invisible. Uh, All the things we complain about at pastor's conferences, you know, he's emphasizing this visibility of the church for the same reason we would identify problems. Uh, So with that, getting to the local parish, at the end of the day, you do have to have real men and women with their children going to that church. Zoom church won't do. And that this is going to take work, and it's going to take the effort of pastors and the dedicated lay people that he identifies in the introduction, especially the young ones who want more, to get after it. Don't let a, a misunderstanding about the efficacy of the sacraments and the invisibility of the church lead you to think that it's all on autopilot. Uh he'll say that would be Jesus wasting his time instructing the disciples to pray for more laborers to be sent into the field. You do actually have to work at this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the same way, we, w- we would also reject the compartmentalization of your spiritual life on one side, the rest of your life elsewhere. Well, that's the visibility of the church. Uh, the way he talks about it is one of those areas. Yeah, it's might uh, so quibble there. with how he gets here yeah yeah we we might quibble with how he gets here and and where he puts the terms, but I think we'd agree with the conclusion uh that the church isn't an invisible entity, only a supernatural addition, and our natural human societies are the real thing, right you know that's what he's trying to get us away from,
0: yeah, well, this is a common complaint uh as you mentioned at pastors conferences, and you know one of the things that I think a lot of guys think about it. You know, our our theology is not our rich theology is not meant to be an excuse for inaction, but the very reason and motivation to act to do something. Uh, and it seems like he really encapsulates that with this. Uh, it's it's real. It's not invisible. It's not fake. Uh, it's made up of real people doing real things with real families in a real place.
1: And that's a great encouragement uh, for just the local parish, no matter how small and obscure it even is. Uh, he summarizes this section by saying, "Your mundane, apparently pathetic little church is the greatest mystery of the universe." <laughs> and I think that is part of the the benefit of this vision for our hearers, for our small confessional liturgical churches, to to help their people not be mm-hmm. so ashamed and embarrassed about being small and liturgical and confessional, but actually use that as a a launching point. Quit apologizing for that, for being that. Recognize that is the most beneficial thing we can be, and the one thing we have to offer the world. And don't bury it.
0: Yeah, it might affect your tactics, but it doesn't affect your mission and your and your vision. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, I remember him talking about uh, membership. It, does he? Does he emphasize actually belonging? to a particular place like you know signing on the dotted line instead of just um you know thinking I'm I'm attending a church
1: yeah there's definitely the idea of being in a family that the church is your home and your family and I don't know if I don't remember if he has it in the same kind of membership language that per se uh our cph book connected to Christ why membership matters we'll talk about it in very clear, explicit detail. But he's doing much of the same thing in this first chapter as that book does as far as uh, belonging and uh, identifying your home church as the, the real visible location that you belong to the body of Christ through.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. So, so the church is uh, the invasion of God's heavenly city here in time with real people transforming the world. How does she go about doing that? What what is the vision, the mission that he thinks the church needs to be on?
1: It's all going to begin with the liturgy. So chapter two begins with what's called tasting the end, that God carries out his mission through the church doing what God has given the church to do. Uh, Lightheart puts it this way, the church's participation in mission centers what happens in the sanctuary. We carry out our mission through the proclamation and teaching of the word of God liturgical gathering around the lord's word and table faithful witness to the kingship of jesus and careful pastoral guidance as the church does her churchly things she brings the life of the age to come to the nations we are builders of the city and the chief labor of building takes place on our day of rest in the liturgy we all are builders because the liturgy is the work of the whole people not merely the work of the pastor the church fulfills Jesus' mission by being what she is—a liturgical city. So the mission starts with liturgy. Now, that, I'm sure that's going to get some head scratching in our LCMS circles. Those are not the predetermined boundaries and sides of the arguments,
0: right? Um, uh, in some ways, uh, in some ways, we do recognize it, but uh, we just argue over what that, the liturgy is. Don't you think?
1: Yeah, that's, that's very fair. Um, the caricature, of course, would be that the we, we say that the, the mission starts with liturgy, but then the liturgy never actually goes anywhere. Or right. the people who leave after having taken part of it don't do anything with it. And that gets the missional side that has no liturgy to say, see, and substitute whatever it is uh, mm-hmm. that they do with apparently more success or programmatic movement uh, towards actually going out and doing something with what they've received uh on a
0: sunday yeah but i mean
1: that that's kind of our inside baseball <laughs> yeah
0: I mean d- is is lightheart using the term liturgy in the same way that we would where we have a a, a definite um historic uh as our president says ordo <laughs> or the the actual right that's handed down is he is he operating with that same understanding or is he doing kind of biblical creative worship week in and week out?
1: In a sense, he does. I was surprised he doesn't take up kind of like the Greek root word for late turgeo and, and actually doesn't go as creative biblical uh, as I was almost expecting. He mm-hmm. really does mean the historic liturgy, ordo <laughs> or rite. Um, we call it word and sacrament. He doesn't like dividing it into the two. And right. for that, we can agree, because he's going to be a big proponent of weekly communion. If you don't have communion, you didn't worship. Right. Because it, you haven't gone to the fulfillment of what it's there for. So right. in that sense, probably based on how he grew up or when he grew up in the LCMS, if it was you know frequently three times out of four in a month, just the service of the word then yeah dividing word and sacrament and calling it a liturgy uh is insufficient he's right in that so he is talking about the historical form that the church of various denominational backgrounds still observes together um in in basic terms he'll define it as the time and place where the church gathers as the city council the ecclesia of god an assembly of the heavenly city real men real women real children real bodies and gathering together, and then dispersing from there. That's how heavenly life comes to earth. Having tasted the good things of the age to come, the church goes out to share those goods in the marketplace. So that's okay. the, the the vision then of how this carries out the mission.
0: So it's, um, you had mentioned earlier that it, it's almost like it's where the secret agents come back to get their their orders and to resupply. It, it, is that what he's S- saying like the the uh historic understanding of coming to the sanctuary that it's it was a it was a place that was not only holy but safe.
1: Uh that, that's more my image than his. I think he'll, his will be more on uh, a feasting analogy within this city okay. and um being shaped by that eucharistic feast um to go forth with, you know, gratitude and uh, centered on the Word of God and on Jesus Christ shaping who we are as people, how our
0: homes live, and how we act in society. So it's a—I um, I think I almost like the idea of the feasting image better, right? That it's it's where we can really be ourselves um, and not have to worry about what the outside thinks. Uh, and Not that he's saying we should ever— but when we actually go out, you know, sometimes that looks different. You know, depending on where you're you're at. So you're, you know, having to attend an HR meeting or a, a, a DEI uh, training program. Uh, you know, what you might do or or not do um, looks different, perhaps on what you're able or capable at that point to to endure. But it is a place to really kind of feast and rejoice. Is that right?
1: Yep. And taking that that joyous feast and that joyous attitude out into the life will will definitely mark you off from the unjoyful ingratitude uh, of the of the world around us.
0: Yeah. Well, it it kind of reminded me of the way Anthony Esselin says, you know, you will convert the pagans by the laughter of your families. Um, that that kind of joyous right. feasting, yeah, good good stuff. Uh, does he does he emphasize a particular order and style? Um,
1: w- yeah, worship worship is going to be scriptural, and that he's going to unpack that then in, in great detail. But at the very core and start of it, um, if there is little to no scripture in the worship service, then whatever it is, it's bad liturgy and any mission from that is going to be contrary. So for him, the the core principle is that good worship, good liturgy, good mission. Mm -hmm. Uh, The the mission has to be saturated and shaped by God's word, as does the liturgy. Um, He's an Old Testament exegete, he's done a lot of New Testament stuff, and one of the one of the things I appreciate most, you know having done a lot of my graduate work in the Psalms and Old Testament worship is how he sees Christian worship flowing out of everything the Old Testament theology of the worship has to give us mm-hmm. and I think if he were still a Lutheran, his case would be even stronger uh, but I'm biased in that that's what he gets for you know not agreeing to come on here himself and having me right. do it so <laughs> Back to the question the way he would see it from the Old Testament till now is that the order is the order of what the Old Testament has as covenant renewal. And there is an order to that there's a gathering, followed by a purifying or cleansing rite, followed by the hearing of the Lord's word, and culminating by feasting in God's presence. So in Christian liturgies, you're going to have the same pieces. Yeah, yeah, uh, but it's also there at Exodus on the on the mount uh, on the mountain at the first covenant. So right. we see that in a Christian liturgy by you gather, you have confession and cleansing, you have the consecration of the people by hearing the word, and then you have the communion together at the table of the Lord.
0: So what what are the must-haves then for him? Like what has to be there
1: if you're going to be a biblical church having biblical worship the way the bible worships you will have a church year because even the old testament has a calendar of feasts you will have ministers who are vested as a sign of honor and authority He, he says the church is not a democracy the there are leaders and rulers as there are in any city and the roles are not interchangeable so it is biblical to mark those out Biblical worship will be filled with art, adorning the sanctuary like a return to the Garden of Eden. He is a big proponent of psalm singing, mm. that the church's song should center on the psalms, not just a few verses like we would have in our intro or graduals. And he says it's one of the most important to-do list items for the church today. I struggle with that. I, I don't disagree. Again, I've done most of my graduate work in psalms, uh, and their their place in the church as well, My problem would be,, uh, having done my graduate work in England and having gone to a lot of even song services at Anglican cathedrals, you can sing the psalms a lot. It does not translate, right? Especially in some place like England. that does not mean that they are believers. right They're not. So I, I would say maybe more along the lines of preaching and teaching on the Psalms. More than simply adding them to the uh, worship docket.
0: Yeah. Well, we have so many uh, hymn paraphrases of the Psalms. I mean, so, uh, Luther, uh, you know, his all of his hymns, um, mostly you know, Psalm paraphrases. Uh, the one on Psalm 12, or Psalm 46, or uh, Psalm 130 you know he's got all of this, and uh maybe that would be a nice place at least within our circles to start doing some more hymn paraphrases of these that that would fit into our kind of heritage more
1: yeah, I'd agree with that i can I can get behind that and again, I can get behind even adding more psalms to our worship I just don't uh I struggle with the way he he presents it as the one of the top of the to- do list items because. Mm-hmm. You can go to plenty of churches over in England that are performing, keyword performing, the psalms daily at these university or large city cathedrals does not mean that they are the city of God and the outpost of the faithful.
0: Yeah, Yeah. And that's where he would say, well, you know, this is something to be sung by everyone.
1: Right, and, and the faithful do want to sing the psalms and study right. the psalms. I think maybe more where we can go with this is uh, thinking back to the introduction, how some of the hearers or the readers of this book go to church every week and they want more. Yeah. And that's where I think we can have some addition that, you know, we're not looking to change the Lutheran service book to have, you know, eight psalms in the divine service spaced out throughout. But maybe the something more is that we do start having more matins or vespers or a midweek service at least that actually does take these up and find a place for not just uh the psalms as a sung form of worship but also additional scripture reading because that's Mm -hmm. really the the main emphasis here and why he wants us to sing the psalms is because there's no better way to saturate yourself with scripture than singing scripture right a paraphrase of it but actually singing scripture
0: so what what is his suggestion uh on that front in terms of the the readings
1: there should be readings plural for one uh mm-hmm. he would reject churches that only have you know a couple short verses i think from his view lectionaries probably offer snippets that are too short and maybe being historically bound to avoiding some of the difficult passages or embarrassing parts uh so i i would imagine he's probably closer to a very long lectio continua than following something like our historic lectionary Mm -hmm. Uh, but in a positive way he does emphasize that in the case of the divine service that's what we would call it the hearing is an important action you can read it with your eyes at home he says that you don't need it all printed out you know thrown in the trash afterwards this is a an important action of hearing it read and so too with the sermon that it should be a biblical exposition you're not giving the news and anecdotes it has to be substantive and as, as solid and meat and potatoes as your congregation can handle, and you should be moving them forward.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, is this where he talks about um, about engaging people's imagination in your preaching, or does that come later? Ooh,
1: I, I'd have to double-check, because he, he does circle back to this sort of thing. Um, right. This but- is more of an introductory, and then there's a, a longer chapter on it later.
0: Yeah, I I just remember being struck by his um his counsel to he he says, "Look, you don't get to people's will by just shouting at them what they should do. You have to engage their imagination." Um and I found that
1: I think that's in his chapter on cultural renewal or mission. But okay. yeah, you're right. That is how using the Bible you want people to see that they are in this Bible. Right. <laughs> this is their story. story. Mm-hmm. You're not preaching about the Bible. You're preaching the Bible, and they are part of it. Mm-hmm. And and so that's where uh, very evocative, expository preaching with this great creative imagination that he has Um I'd call it, he doesn't just read the Bible typologically, he reads history typologically, right? History is the story of the Bible and your people sitting in your pews are in the story of the Bible and it's your job to see th- to see them seated at that table.
0: Yeah. So um, sitting at that table then, <laughs> uh, assuming he's getting to communion when he's kind of wrapping all this together and, and demonstrating... Uh, by way of uh, analogy or um, even typology, that this is our story, and we're in it, and it's unfolding among us. Uh, Where does it come down on communion?
1: Yeah, this will be tough for your Lutheran audience. Um, It'll obviously be the biggest area of disagreement. It starts out good, though. He will argue in favor of weekly communion, and if you are a listener who is still fighting that out, in the parish. You should certainly take it up, see if he's tapping into some ways of talking about it that will be more useful than what you've tried. Uh, that's the good. The bad is that he prefers sitting at a table and sees kneeling for communion as objectionable. Too penitential. This is supposed to be a celebration um, and that that idea of celebration as kind of a topical theme, ends up overruling almost anything else scripture might say about communion. He doesn't avoid 1 Corinthians 11, which is what some Reformed might do. He does locate it earlier than when you get to the table. And we, we wouldn't necessarily disagree with that side of self-examination either. Um, but I, I think his objection to the rail and kneeling for communion is inaccurate. And I'd, mm-hmm. I'd love to sit down with him and, and point out, you know, the wedding rite, that you have a, a husband and wife, you know, kneeling at the altar to be proclaimed man and wife in a union that then is reenacted between the bridegroom Christ and his bride, the church. Right. And I'm sure you've seen this, too, at times where husband and wife come up and they're kneeling next to each other at communion and, and holding hands while they commune. Right. Uh this is not just because you're kneeling at a rail does not mean you're there as some sort of gloomy penitent. Right. You wouldn't look at a couple on their wedding day kneeling as the pastor unites them and say, oh, they're gloomy and penitential. Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: yeah, often now, that's you, the bad. Yeah. There,
1: there's yet the ugly to go. Yeah. The, uh, the ugly is two twofold. <laughs> it's uh, he definitely pushes for open communion amongst all visible Christians. And that, of course, is his very bottom basic definition of faith in Christ for salvation and then also oddly enough uh he's a fa- he's a fan of infant communion and he never actually describes that in practice which makes this whole section a little bit uh impossible to figure out how early is he talking because he doesn't describe how it's to be done and uh, knowing that that's a bugaboo and rightfully so in our circles, I guess I would just, uh, I'd like to dispatch it as quickly and efficiently as possible because I don't think it warrants the discussion. I don't want to validate it by a long winded discussion. If you, if you get my drift Uh, it's not consistent with our Lutheran theology. It is not in accord with
0: our historical practice period. So what is the, the, what's the role of communion in the church's life then? It's twofold. It is,
1: first and foremost, Jesus. Jesus is the solution to the world's problems, and he is here in the sacrament. That's why I say he's not quite as caricature, not a caricature reformed view of the sacrament like we're used to. So you'd have to be very careful with that. But we're very glad to see it. And as Lutherans, we can say that in a very firm bodily presence way second is the eucharistic angle and that is something i really want to uh, emphasize in my preaching and teaching this year that uh, as he puts it when we share this eucharistic meal we are united with jesus in his one great thanksgiving to the father offered in his cross and resurrection united to christ we are formed by the spirit to live lives of continuous thanksgiving for all things in all circumstances right your hearers are no doubt hearing the words of the proper preface It is good, right, and salutary that we should at all times and in all places give thanks to you. Uh, And yet we live such gloomy, ungrateful, unjoyful lives. Um, We shouldn't do that. If we really believe what we as Lutherans especially say about the sacrament, we should be the most grateful people that you meet. And Lightheart would say that's the only sane way to live. If all that you have is a gift from God, then the only way you should be standing every minute of every day is in thanksgiving. Now that would definitely mark us off from the world around us today.
0: Mm -hmm. All right. So, in summation, then it sounds like he's saying, kind of what Saint Paul says at the beginning of First Corinthians: "You're not lacking in anything, no matter how big or how small you are. You've got everything."
1: Yes, we have everything, only because the Word is that powerful, Mm -hmm. Uh, and the Word is going to be the topic of the next chapter. Then. Uh, as if we haven't already had a lot about the centrality and saturation of scripture. Uh, Chapter three is going to be his preview of the Theopolitan reading book as a separate book or part. Um, So that's, that's where he unpacks how he would see us preaching and teaching the word. And um, in the second part or in the second book, depending on how you're, you're taking this book in, it's mostly demonstrating his reading. If you've read other books or commentaries he's done, you could probably skip it. Uh, if this is your first time reading it, reading anything by Lightheart, then you probably do wanna spend a lot of time in this because otherwise a lot of his imagery and creative writing and thinking is gonna seem very obscure uh, as a first reading.
0: Yeah. So uh, typology is key here. So, what does he say about so Scriptura?
1: He agrees in a way that we would, too, that there are other authorities in the church, but all those have to conform to the authority of the Word of God, right? We would talk about Norma Normans and Norma Normata. He'll say, uh, sola scriptura is ultimately a statement about Jesus' lordship over his church. And then he gets into some of his kind of creative biblical imagery, which I think is a helpful way to teach this also. He puts it this way. The question is this, can Jesus speak to his bride? to correct and guide her? Or are all the words that the church hears, simply the words of the bride, are preaching, theology, commentary, teaching, no more than different ways in which the bride talks to herself? Is the church's speech a monologue or a dialogue? As Lord, he must be able to correct and renew his church by his word. He must have an independent voice in the church. That voice is the voice of scripture, the written word in which we hear what the spirit of Jesus says to the churches. So I think that's a very helpful way to understand and and unpack sola scriptura for our people because he even throws in their preaching and theology. Mm -hmm. If they're conformed to the word of God, this is the bridegroom talking to the bride. This is not the bride talking to herself.
0: Yeah, the living living voice of Christ, right? Yes. Uh, So so unpack what that looks like in practice. How, How does he say to go about doing this?
1: Well, take the Bible as a real world book. As we dealt with in a previous chapter, we do not want to compartmentalize that the Bible only speaks to your spiritual life and your worldly stuff is just up to you. The Bible says a lot about worldly stuff. In fact, he'll point out the Bible says a lot more about politics than it says about predestination. If we're going to preach and teach the Bible, we're going to have to get comfortable saying a lot more about land and gardens and sex and architecture and barrenness and war uh, than we normally do. and we cannot dodge the hot topic buttons when the Bible speaks to them. We have to use the whole Bible uh, and its context, the whole Bible as context, rather than just isolating a proof text here or there. Uh, so for example, on the the current issues of uh, you know human sexuality and all the craziness happening there, uh, he would not just look for one verse here or there, whether it's, you know, debunking women's ordination or, uh, why homosexuality is wrong, Romans 1 and 2, or 1 Corinthians 6. He's He wants to see putting it in the context of the entire Bible, everything that is said about uh, everything God says from Genesis to Revelation and how that bears upon something in the realm of sexuality. Uh, and, of course, with that, remaining Christocentric. So he yeah. will also take up that, that the Bible is the story of Jesus and Jesus' holy war, um, And that as we tackle these real hot button issues, Christ at the center and the whole of Scripture as the testimony is the only way to uh, attack it, not through proof texting.
0: So, okay, so um, does he distinguish between like proof texting and, say, finding the sedes doctrinae, you know, the seat of where this doctrine is put? Does Does he make a distinction like that at all?
1: Not that I saw or remember, and yeah, that I... is a bit of a, a hermeneutical difference when you leave Lutheranism. From from what I've seen and studied, um, that's not always that's not on the radar, and, and it would even I, I would even add that from my looking into this, um, scripture interprets scripture is an area that we Lutherans need to be doubly good on because everybody else is really bad on. Okay. Um, most most other hermeneutical textbooks of other evangelical and reformed denominations, they have no parameters at all. Like not even, it has the one scripture passage has to be talking about the same topic in order for it to shed light on one another, where historically at least, I don't know if it's still done that well, but historically Lutherans have been very good about the perspicuity of Scripture, and using clear passages to enlighten the darker passages. And that you will not find outside of Lutheranism from my from what I've studied. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, somebody can show me wrong on that if they want, but if you're not really covering Scripture, interpreting Scripture, then I don't think you're going to have the same uh, approach to a, a sedes doctrina, that there are certain passages that are super abundantly clear so as to establish this is the doctrine of baptism or this is the Lord's Supper rather to the opposite extreme because of his typology he's going to take uh, and kind of any random feasting passage or maybe even his understanding of the entire theology of feasting in the Bible and say this is why we should commune infants well now that's that's a different approach
0: yeah so how does the how does a, a typological reading? Um, connect to his Theopolitan vision for the church today? Why is that kind of reading so important?
1: His approach to topology is that it applies to all of history, not just to the period of what's called Bible history. Uh, So it's the same God, he's still working today in 2023, and he's still working the same way as he did in Genesis 12 with Abram. Uh, So God Mm. writes with events is what he would say. Uh, not merely with words and foreshadows, but he writes in the events of history. It, typology isn't just a literary device then when you're dealing with the God of history. Typology is about the shape of history. Uh, it's about telling, uh, isn't, it's not just about telling history. A typological reading will unveil the pattern of how historical events unfold uh, for Lightheart. I'll admit I get a little nervous when I hear reformed people talk that way. Um, that's probably a tangent for a separate time, though. It's uh, I think it could be a little concerning as to um, kind of a manifest destiny approach, that if we are successful, that's proof that we are um, benefiting from our faithfulness to God, whereas I think it's a little more one-sided, that you may, you may become punished for your unfaithfulness. We should not necessarily conclude that success, even military success, is a sign that you are on God's... Good side and the side of the angels.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's always that that side when uh, probably even particularly discussing you know the hot topics today like the rise of Christian nationalism or mere Christendom, as Doug Wilson puts it. Um, there are points of agreement uh, in terms of uh, historic Lutheranism that we shouldn't shy away from in terms of. You know, Luther and the early Lutherans firmly believed that the civil government should um, be there to protect the church, right? Or to uh, institute godly biblical laws. Um, But we kind of have a different, uh, an overarching schema that's a little bit different, don't we?
1: Yeah, it's pretty different. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I I could go on with this for a long time, but I don't want to derail the interview. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay, so uh, is this the place where then Lightheart kind of talks about the academy and the biblical scholars and kind of? Oh says, yeah, this is
1: this is great. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, I've I've permanently bookmarked this page for for future reference. Uh, Maybe my favorite quote in the whole book. Um, So theologians and Bible scholars often think that they're the primary teachers of the church. They're wrong. Theology and biblical scholarship are ministries of the church, which means that scholars are servants of pastors, preachers, and people. Mm -hmm. Theology doesn't come to its climax in a plenary lecture at the Society of Biblical Literature, ouch, or in a paper published in Modern Theology or in a widely reviewed book that wins a Christianity Today award. Theology and biblical scholarship come to their climax in the liturgical assembly of the people of God, where a pastor delivers the word of the Lord to the people of God at the Lord's table. To you, theologians and scholars, remember that you serve the church, its pastors, and its people. And to those who are pastors, theologians exist for your sake, to assist you as you do the really big work of theology. Don't let them belittle you, end quote. (laughs) So as as we might say, the church does not exist for the sake of its institutions like CPH or seminaries. The institutions exist for the sake of the church. And for the people, he says, you might want to make a difference, uh, a big difference. You you want to make a a difference, a big difference, the biggest difference, then you need to hear the word, believe the word, sing the word, speak the word, obey the word. And the spirit will ignite you as the city of light shining in the darkness, uh, and I, I love that. That was yeah. a, a great way to to finish up this chapter on on what the word can accomplish and where it belongs in the life of the assembly gathered together.
0: So leaving off then with the theologians, the scholars serving really the church and primarily its pastors. What is his understanding of pastoral theology then?
1: That's taken up in chapter four, uh, titled Angels at the Gate, again, pack- repackaging Revelation 21.12. And um, that'll be really key, the angels at the gates, that we are guardians. Um, there is still, even though he's very inclusive, even open communion, he will talk about the admission and exclusion that happens in our teaching and in our conduct of the liturgy, that we are watchmen and warriors and for that pastors need to be equipped and faithful
0: so um what does the church and her pastors need in order to march forward on this mission
1: we don't need very much i think Lightheart's a little more lutheran at this point he says we need water we need bread and wine and we need god's word if you have that get to work uh Our reason, human reason, thinks we need more. And this here, he kind of tropes it a bit that, oh, our reason thinks we need a strategic plan. We need a lobbying consultant in Washington, D.C. He said that, not me. I'm not talking about Lutheran Center for Religious Liberty. He said it, uh, that we think we need a lobbying consultant. We think we need a PR firm. We think we need a website, a Facebook page, a Twitter account, all these examples. But Jesus doesn't act according to our reason. He gives us means, and he sends pastors, right? The word doesn't teach itself. Sermons don't preach themselves. Bread doesn't serve itself to people. Wine doesn't pour itself. The liturgy doesn't happen on accident. Mm-hmm. You are there to be the leader, yeah. the doer of these things.
0: It's interesting because, while, all those things that you mentioned, like websites, Facebook pages, Twitter accounts, um you know, putting down a plan, whatever, they're all fine if all the foregoing stuff is already there. I mean, it's not bad to have those things. It's not wrong to have those things, but so often we view them as replacements for the very thing that does give us life and 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 demonstrates what our mission and vision are
1: right. They're time thieves. it's It's Act six, right? We should not give up preaching and prayer to wait on tables mm-hmm. and from the Theopolitan vision if I were to try and picture how this urban rule takes place, the pastor should not be spending hours doing the website, he should be leading daily matins until enough people are motivated and caring enough about it that one of them is taking the website. Um, you know, same with PR firms, Facebook pages, all the kind of nation, nationwide synodical examples. You know, do what your church is supposed to be doing preach the word, study the word, pray with your people, gather together around the word be saturated in that and and let the other stuff fall out uh, as it goes. Um, So that's how I would kind of, as much as I try to synthesize what he's getting at or what it would look like um, in something like this, if the word and the sacraments are the tools, then why am I spending so much of my time in my email
0: inbox? (laughs) Uh, So true. No lies detected. Um, So where did, where does, Lightheart locate pastors in the, the body of Christ metaphor?
1: Pastors are the sinews or the ligaments of the body of Christ. Uh, without pastors, the church is a flabby mess. And if he's seen our ministerium, maybe even with pastors, it's a flabby mess. My, my comment, not his. Uh, but without pastors, the church has no structure, no vision, it flounders. When the church has no shepherds or weak and vacillating shepherds, She is prey to wolves, false shepherds, and dragons. Obviously, another revelation connection there with dragons. So if you're not willing to confront the sins of your church and the culture, then you shouldn't be in the pulpit. Uh, If you can't handle the backlash from either the congregation or the world, then don't step up. If you're not ready for the fight to be a guardian, a warrior, the angels at the gates, then you shouldn't have been a pastor. And he puts it very bluntly. If you're a pastor and have given up fighting, repent or resign.
0: So what does he see primarily as the functions then of the office? Does he even put it in those terms?
1: He might not use the word function, but you know the way we've used it historically is not very great either. Uh, what they are to do is first conduct the liturgy, serve at the table. That is an act of spiritual warfare. So do it it's not theater or chancel prancing, you are doing something. And he'll unpack the liturgy and it's five parts uh, here, that we have a calling to to gather, we have a confession, that the people are consecrated or made holy by the word, that we are communing together, and then there's the commissioning or sending out at the end. Uh, The the part of the book that is Theopolitan liturgy will go into more detail on that. But again, I think it's it's pretty limited for what a Lutheran reader is going to get out of it. Go with Winger's great essay on the divine service.
0: Or Gottesdienst. <laughs> uh,
1: well, that's your plug. That's yeah. your plug. I'm just a guest here.
0: Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, you know, we'll take all the plugs we can get. Um, so what are the main worthwhile parts in this section then? If you'd point us elsewhere, what are the main things to consider?
1: Lightheart has a great way of talking, a great way of writing. He's engaging. He is saturated in the biblical way of talking and talking about the liturgy and how the liturgy intersects our evil culture and our people's lives. I think that can be very useful. For instance, when he's talking about the invocation, he says, we ought not to sachet into God's presence, sipping a latte and chatting about the football game, right? That's a very... uh, an engaging and inspirational way of talking about something where, you know, a ham-fisted Lutheran might just yell at his people for not being reverent in the presence of, you know, the sacrament. Right. Or in confession, he'll talk about the liturgy is a zone of transparent honesty in a world of spin, scapegoating, and blame. You know, that that's much better than just, you know, throwing out there, it's the fifth chief part of the catechism, we have to do this, it's the ordo, end of discussion. Right. Well, that's not going to be uh, convincing, but this is where the imagination captures the will that, yeah, actually, when we participate in confession and absolution, this is a huge mark of the church. The world is all about blaming other people and we're taking the blame. Yeah. The world is all about spinning things, and here we're going to tell it like it is.
0: Yeah, there there is a sense like where, I mean, no one likes to be tone policed, but, you know, we got to get better at at least when we. S- set out to convince that we do it in in a way that is at least somewhat convincing and not just, you know, right, and it's
1: not just about being win it's not the old winsomeness argument either. Cause I mean, he says, if you're not ready to fight, <laughs> repent or resign, Right. it's about being biblical, right? Yeah. You need to be, you need to be able to convince your people who are Bible reading serious Christians with the Bible. And he's so creative and and brilliant with his use of the Bible to prove the points we would agree on that, you know, we can learn from that in in a great way to get out of our own way. Because I know that, uh, you know, our pastors are, God willing, reading their Bible and are, you know, saturated with it themselves. Well, then you've got to use that when you're talking to your people about things you'd like to change or improve in your divine service or in their evangelism efforts or whatever the case may be. You know, use use the the language of the Bible; they'll recognize it. Then, mm-hmm. if it's just authoritarian, uh, yeah, that that's still a fight, but not a, not the right kind of
0: fight. So, he's mainly focused on liturgical practice or Eucharistic uh, the centrality of the Eucharist in in pastoral theology. Is there any sense in which the the sermon itself, the preaching of the word, uh, uh, kind of attains a means of grace in the way it would within Lutheran understanding of things.
1: Yes and no. No in that it may not be the same as we see preaching in relation to the other sacraments, but yes, that uh, Lightheart's biblical saturation requires it to be taught and preached, and he does have a lot to say on preaching uh in both the congregational setting and in private pastoral situations. Right? That it's the pastor's job is to speak. You're going into horrific situations, conflicts, tragedies, and you're there to speak. You need if you're going to speak the word of God, you need to be rooted in that word of God. You need to read it, pray it, meditate on it, study it, fill it so that you have something to give those. Um and here he chides us for often de- devoting our time to other things that might seem more effective, like maybe our emails, uh, but not then the word, which is what we are
0: called to speak. So where, where does the mission of the church, the, the sending uh, that you get in this final part of the liturgy and, and, and the pastoral theology, how does that fit in?
1: Right. The, the mission or the, the sending out actually doesn't occur in the pastoral theology chapter. It occurs in the next chapter on the laity's theology. Uh, the pastor is the mouth of the body of Christ in that place. But the body of Christ can't just be a mouth. It's the hands that serve, the feet that go, the chests that fight. It's not egalitarian. This is a complex body with some moving parts, and it's the laity's position in their... As they go out from hearing the word of God spoken by the pastor, the mouth of the body of Christ, that they go out as they're living in society. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's kind of the the, the function here, that the, the feet are going to go the way the mouth tells it.
0: All right. So if if in the liturgical assembly, the, the pastor is the mouth and the people are the, the feet and the chests and um, the hands that serve what role is do they have in the liturgy itself, then?
1: First, he gives them preparation. You know, they should prepare for church by singing psalms and hymns in home, teaching their children the prayers and creeds, mm-hmm. reading and reflecting on scripture. Uh, so he's big on family worship, and that it's not the same as congregational worship, but it can be preparation, or he calls it boot camp for congregational worship.
0: <laughs> okay.
1: Second... Your, your lay leaders who are reading this kind of a book, they need to help push, help push the congregation in good directions. If it doesn't have everything that the Theopolitan vision convinces you that you should have, like weekly Eucharist or psalm singing or longer readings of scripture, even if it has none of those things, he would still say, if it's faithfully preaching the gospel, then thank God and help out. But he also says, thankfulness does not mean you have to be complacent with it. Offer suggestions, but being thankful, uh, be prepared that legitimate criticisms and suggestions will or can arise from bitterness too. Mm -hmm. He then does add, if there is no gospel, if even the preaching of the gospel isn't taking place, then you protest. And if the protest fails, then you do have to leave. So that's where, again, for somebody who's open communion, very inclusive, visible Christianity wide-ranging. If the gospel's not being preached, you got to go somewhere where it is.
0: So that's within the liturgy. Uh, how about outside it?
1: Outside, the, the lay people are the builders. And outside of the liturgy, they will be guardians too. Uh, the, other, the Old Testament priests did other things outside of their liturgical duties. Uh, here he'll add things like calling your brother to repentance when he sins against you. Don't just leave it to the pastor. You do it. He'll say, in a healthy congregation, most of the pastoral care and correction is not carried out by the pastor, because the members are doing it. They are one to another, each other. They're exhorting one another, encouraging one another, confronting one another, correcting one another, loving one another. Man, wouldn't that be nice to see? Uh, And they'd also build up their own families, obviously, teaching the word to their children, uh, witnessing to the unbelieving, and of course, the royal priesthood prays.
0: So that kind of sounds like really what happens inside the liturgy uh now happening outside.
1: Yeah, and and that's probably the whole key to this theopolitan vision. And we've been saying this for a long time in our in our liturgical Lutheran circles, but maybe not in a very convincing way or in a biblical enough way to get, you know, our bible believing Lutherans to move off of their Baptist uh leanings and into this uh historic liturgical direction that the great value of the liturgy is that it sets a pattern and rhythm here in time here with the stuff of creation the space and the sound that you can repeat outside in transformative ways uh you just have to be willing to look weird right
0: well you know uh if 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 the world is normal then be weird
1: amen Uh, that, that's the, the heart of the approach that he takes to mission, evangelism, culture renewal. Uh, it's probably the, the reason why it is so uncomfortable for us Lutherans and he'll admit it's uncomfortable for him. Uh, it's going to have to get political. Evangelism is going to call on real people to give up some, if not all parts of the world, the world as it's currently running. The world is going to fight back. People are going to fight back. Um, we've got to be learning from the martyrs in that. And he'll, he'll talk about politics and even international politics. And we don't, uh, can't get into all of that with the time we have, we're already, you know, more than your, your listeners are probably willing to listen to, but we have to resist the, uh, the easy way of falling into political ide- ideologies, you know, church being church in the, invisible spiritual sense, but then we just fall into a political party in the real life side of it. Yeah. If you're, if you're avoiding that compartmentalization, you've got to be ready for both sides to hate you, right? Yeah. He uses the example, your conservatives are going to think you're a globalist turncoat. <laughs> right. You know, why? Because you actually care about people on other sides of the planet, right? You actually care about them. Mm-hmm. At the same time, he's going to say liberals are going to think you're a nostalgic localist. You can't choose sides and you're not going to split the difference, Right, we are operating with a citizenship from a different city, a city that is just as real and a city that is here and now, and it's a city that's going to win. Right, our city wins.
0: So, uh, any final thoughts? I mean, either yours or Lightheart's con- conclusion. W- overall, what are your your big takeaways?
1: Yeah, I'm I'm embarrassed that I have to agree with him on the final thought, but I do. Uh, he says, "I love to read. I'm not so eager to do." Doing is hard work. I can't do from my recliner. Uh, And maybe for your listeners, maybe that's just as true. We love to read or we like listening to podcasts, but take something from this interview or take something from this book and do it. Lightheart says, start where you are, do what you can, but do. And so I'd say to maybe the pastors listening, don't just wait for your next call to get to work. If you're at some place that's not doing things the way you'd like to, don't just wait for your next call. Get to work where you are. Right? Mm-hmm. You, don't have, you can't do everything at once but do something. Um, study, the, study and teach the word. If you can start teaching psalm singing and, and see a way that that can benefit your people, then do that too. Uh, move mm-hmm. your congregation forward with uh, its liturgical life or communion frequency. If you're not a pastor and you're listening to this, I'd, I'd encourage you to throw yourself into the congregation's life. Get active in everything. Uh, even if you don't have everything in your church that you'd want to see, get active. Pray for your pastors and your church leaders. Uh, don't just listen to me say, pray for it and agree in your heart, but actually, you know, stop and pray. Yeah. Maybe pause it, pray, and then finish up the many two minutes of the interview uh and, and finally have have great trust and confidence that this is jesus building the father's city by the work of the spirit he does the work and he calls us to share in that work but don't then make that fall off the other side where you do nothing it is work so mm-hmm. get to work
0: yeah that's so it's so easy for us not to uh, to think about you know that we um there is a there is a difficult task, and it does require some investment personally. And it's very easy to to say, "Well, you know, Jesus is going to do it anyway." Um, but kind of one of the takeaways that I have from this book is that he gives us this uh, you know incomprehensible understanding. Like, I, it's not how I would do it, but he wants he includes us, like he finds he gives us worth and honor to say not only am i going to do it but i i want you to take part in it and it's kind of like the you know the the father growing up saying hey son i'm working on this i could use your help can you come and help me even though like as the kid you're doing nothing right maybe getting in the way yeah uh but he still wants you to to come along and and enjoy the fruit of all that labor
1: and that it's the most important labor you could be doing. Right. It's And it's the most central thing to the existence of the entire universe. It mm-hmm. actually has a future. I, I love your, your analogy there with asking the kid to help because yesterday I had my my three-year-old and my one-year-old trying to help me bag leaves. And yeah, getting them to keep doing it was, was kind of trying. They don't have long attention spans. But it also, it's just leaves. It doesn't matter. Right. And, In the liturgy, I'm inviting them in, and and they participate, and and they're receiving gifts of God through the preached word and and participating in the singing of hymns. And this is the most important thing happening at any hour of the week, let alone that hour. And and here we are gathered together with God's saints to do that, uh, to be a part of that. It it is truly ineffable.
0: Well, thank you for your time, Matt, uh, and for you know, riding me to, to read this book. You'd mentioned it uh, probably about six months ago. And then you sent me an email and said, Hey, are we going to do this? I'm like, Oh, that's right. Uh, so thanks for keeping on it and, and alerting me to this particular book, the Theopolitan vision by Peter Lighthart, Uh, uh, Dr. Lightheart, if you're listening, uh, and you want to come on to, to, uh, say we're wrong about, we misunderstood, uh, I'm always available so thanks again Matt and uh, look forward to having a discussion with you again
1: thanks have a great day